Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, January 17th, 2014. Man, I'm glad to have steered the pirate ship out of Mermaid Lagoon. That's what what one of the listeners called it yesterday's episode, Mystical Estrogenist Mermaid Lagoon. Yeah, it's some uncharted territory for me. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is a program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and use... That thing that God has given you between your ears, it's called a brain. Uh, so, so much of what happens in Christianity could seriously be avoided as far as the false teaching is concerned if people would simply slow down and just ask some basic discernment questions and, um, and then open up God's Word and check to see if what somebody's saying is actually true, if it squares with Scripture or not. Um, and, you know, listen, you know, the Bible is a lot in a lot of ways, just like every other document. And in a lot of ways, it's not like any document ever. OK, and the reason I say it that way is that it's like every other document in this sense, is that God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired human authors to write human language that we can all read. OK, you know, the, the idea is this, a, a communication that's written that we can understand and if you read the Bible the, similarly to the way you read other texts, yeah, that's right, other books, textbooks and uh, information books and things like that or poetry books and stuff like that, you can get what's going on. You know, for instance, okay, so you know, if I were to sit down and try to describe to you, you know, how to do video editing <laughs> – which, by the way, would be ter- – this. it would not be a very deep document, okay? Let's put it this way. I'm still getting the swing of this thing. But it, I, could, I could sit down and I could write a written document that is intended to teach you how to launch uh, Apple's uh, Final Cut uh, Pro program, how to grab a, you know, a piece of video, how to – snippet it and put it onto a timeline and then string different videos together. And at the end of it, you would have a basic rough idea of how to 
put together a video, you know, for use on YouTube or things like that. <clears throat> and so the idea is, is that set of instructions would be written in English. Um, you could, you know, and written it, 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 in, in English um, it, during the second decade of the 21st century. So the words that I'm using, uh, you know, if, you know, say, for, let's pretend, you know, for whatever reason I wrote this document and somebody discovered it, you know, a thousand years from now. Now, we would assume that English had, you know, a thousand years from now, should the Lord tarry. English might morph a little bit. It seems to morph quite often. Uh, and so the idea is, is that the words I'm using are to be understood the way they're being used in common vernacular at, you know, the, during the time of the second decade of the 21st century, you could actually figure out what I'm referring to, uh, you know, what I mean by my words and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's the idea <clears throat> is that biblical hermeneutics, the, you know, the, the concepts behind in, in biblical exegesis and interpretation, exegesis is the actual practice of hermeneutics, if you would. Um, you could, you know, we could go and we can take a look at these documents, all right? Now, the Bible is not one document. It is a compendium. It is a, it is a, it's a library of sorts, and I think that's not a bad way to talk about it. Um, it you know, of many different documents collected over the millennia, um, and one thing that they all have in common is is that they're truly the word of God. And each document, despite the fact they have different authors, different languages in which they're written in, um, even different vernacular within the same languages, uh, some. Some uh, the guys who uh, who wrote the Old Testament they had better grammar than others. Um, same with the uh, with the Greek New Testament. There are, there's there's some Greek that's just really super high polished Greek in the New Testament, and then there's some Greek that's just like whoa, <clears throat> who wrote this? Um, <clears throat> for instance, okay, um, if you're translating through the Book of Hebrews, that's some pretty high polished highfalutin Greek going on there in the Book of Hebrews. Uh, you get to the book of Revelation, <laughs> it's, <laughs> well, let's just put it this way. Uh, the book of Revelation has, takes some liberties with uh, Greek grammar and things like that. And uh, but the, the re regardless, you can still get what's going on. So the point is, is that God, the Holy Spirit, is the common author between them. And then we understand how those words are being used at the time that they were written, um, and we can take a look at this, these documents and understand what God is referring to, what God's will for us is, what he's revealed about himself. And if you just apply a little bit of discernment in the sense of, you know, let's take a look at what this document's trying to convey, you know, what it is conveying, and then compare it to what many popular pastors, preachers, teachers, authors, and other folk are saying that it says— um, and you'll realize that, well, sadly, there's a lot of deception going on out there. Now, this should not surprise us. And the reason I say that it shouldn't surprise us is because Jesus himself told us this is exactly what would happen. <laughs> it's like, you know, so it's, it, listen, you know, I, I, I've used this metaphor before, but if you've ever read any history about like the Civil War or, you know, World War One or World War Two, and, you know, you, you like learning about different battles and, and stuff like that, then you'll understand that tactically surprise is one of those big tactical advantages that uh, during wartime you want to try to employ. Uh, it's not the last thing you want to do is basically sit down and write a memo saying, Dear enemy troops, 
Um, we hope to meet you on the field of battle tomorrow at 3 in the afternoon. Uh, please bring your rifles and artillery. Uh, we'll be there uh, a few minutes ahead of time. We could shake hands and, and let the battle commence. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen that way. Um, the idea is is that the the, uh, the ones initiating the battle, um, if they could do so in a way that catches their enemy off guard, that this this is tactically an advantage, you know, during wartime, and uh, and so Jesus has actually taken away say, Satan's tactical advantage regarding the ability for him to sneak attack. Us, uh, you know, regarding false teachers and preachers, Jesus told us there would be these folks, you know, even performing false signs and false miracles and leading the elect astray if that were even possible. Since Jesus told us it was going to be this way, well, what does that mean? It means this. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We should be actually prepared for it. So uh, this is a program that um, can cause weeping and gnashing of teeth. It could cause outbursts and laughter just because some of the stuff we deal with is so absurd. And that's the thing I don't understand. Why, why, why anybody takes some of these people seriously? Um, and then the idea is to get at the truth. So, the, you know, it's an exercise in trying to help you and challenge you in a way to dig deeper into your Bible to learn what it really has to say. Because, oh, man, um, the, the real message of Scripture is so much better uh, than the candy-coated, sugar-coated, you know, pragmatically strip mined weird stuff that we're getting from so many false teachers out there. It, the, the real message of the gospel it, it, it provides eternal comfort and real salvation. So, all right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Quick announcement. We were finally, finally, I was able to finish episode two of the Fighting for the Faith video blog. It's posted at fightingforthefaith.com and it's entitled Bible Secrets Debunked Was Adam a Historical Individual? And um, you know, in the early part of it, you'll notice I, I utilize an argument that I used on a previous radio episode of Fighting for the Faith, but it's a lot more than that. I actually have an ace card. I Yes, I do. I have an ace card in this episode. And, okay, despite my desire to have short video blogs, um, it's not happening. No, <laughs> it's just not happening. This episode weighs in at a hefty 31 minutes and 45 seconds. I feel like I'm editing a television program. Anyway, um, so just want to let you know, episode two is out. And uh, if you know anybody um, that has been... Uh, hoodwinked by the really bad scholarship in the History Channel's Bible Secrets Revealed series. Um, you point them to this. Point them to this because uh, even though I only take on one argument, when you see the depth that I went to to kind of address the issue and when you see the ace card that I play, and I'm not going to reveal what it is. You have to actually watch the episode. I have an ace card, and it's a – I love this ace card. It's one of those ones where once I play the ace card, uh, it, it – I, my hope was that by playing the ace card that I played that people will see – Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, History Channel, probably not the place where I want to get my uh, theological argumentation from or theology from. So caveat emptor, buyer beware if you're going to be getting your theology from the History Channel. And you'll understand after I play the ace card. Again, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you can find it at fightingforthefaith.com. It's currently on the homepage. 
uh, there at fightingforthefaith.com. And it's Bible Secrets Debunked. Was Adam a historical individual? And hopefully you will, y'all will find it to be helpful and uh, and useful. But anyway, so um, what we're going to do today, you know, I was like, I'm derailing on my own mind here. What we're going to do today. All right. Yes. Yeah. And I'm exhausted from a kettlebell workout. I you know, don't, I don't even want to talk about that. Okay. So we're, I'm going to answer a quick email. So we got an email segment. Then we're going to do a, um, an installment of Pierce's Ponderous prophecies. Yeah, Chuck Pierce of the New Apostolic Reformation, and you have to kind of put the whole thing in quotes. He claims to be one of the twelve living apostles on the earth currently, right now. And you know, and uh, over there at Glory of Zion, he receives direct revelation from God, the Holy Spirit. At least that's what he claims. So we're (laughs) we're (laughs) we're going to be listening to one of um, Pierce's ponderous prophecies, and I have to play the. I have to play our standard warning before I actually play this for you because it is one of the (laughs) silliest things I've ever heard in my life. And um, the uh, the title for it is is something to the effect of God. God is the Holy Spirit's going to strike you with lightning so that you can fit through a keyhole. I know, I know. Some of you are already looking at your iPods and stuff like that. And listen, I'm I'm just the messenger, so uh, you know, just just to let you know. Then what we'll do when we come back from the break, I have a um, Cindy Jacobs update and a Mark Driscoll update, and then in hour number two, we're going to end the week off with two fantastic law gospel sermons. Um, I'll give you the details. Uh, regarding that when we uh, when we get to the other side of the break. So that's what's going to make up the balance of today's program. We're going to start off with an email segment, though, so let's get right to it. This email actually is not exactly an email. It's a, a, a message that came to me from Facebook, a listener on Facebook. His name is David, and he lives in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. You, you got to admit, it, just the name Sheboygan. I mean, it, I, I just love that name. Anyway, um, David writes, he says, he says, all right, Chris, serious question. Since ta- taking passages out of their historical context and intended audience leads to wrongly interpreting Scripture, for instance, Jeremiah 29, 11, how can we justify using the epistles since they were originally addressed to those churches or to individuals? Now, David, this is a great question. Great, great question. Now, uh, I'm going to push back a little bit on the question because there's something assumed in the question that's just a little bit off, and I'll explain. Okay? Uh, it's not that taking, you know, what somebody's doing with Jeremiah 29, 11, is that they're taking it out of historical context. What they're doing is they're taking a message that was specifically for the uh, the uh, the captives in Babylon, okay? See, this was a very specific epistle to a specific group of people in a specific historical context. And even the letter itself in the book of Jeremiah makes it very, very clear who it's for and what's going on there. Now, now, now that doesn't mean that there isn't theology that's applicable 
to uh, to us as Christians. But what it does mean is when somebody strip mines out just that part that they like, uh, you know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to profit you, and you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah, see, that's a specific promise in a specific context to a specific group of people. So the the problem is is that you're reading somebody else's mail. Now, when it comes to the epistles in the New Testament, okay, I don't know if you are aware of this, but historically the epistles in the New Testament have been referred to as, get this, the Catholic epistles. Mm -hmm. If you were to do a Google search for the Catholic epistles, you would find that this is a category of epistles. The general epistles are Catholic epistles, Catholic meaning universal. Uh, Let me read to you from a theological encyclopedia here. These are books in the New Testament in the form of letters, and they are termed general uh, or Catholic because for the most part, their intended audience is a general Christian audience audience rather than individual persons or congregations. So the idea is is this, these the Catholic epistles are meant to be read um, by the you know by different churches. In fact, we see in the epistles that these things were circulated. You know, uh, it, there's even instructions to copy this and pass this along and read this to other churches. So uh, the idea here is that the epistles are generally considered to be Catholic or universal epistles, um, with with a couple of exceptions. Uh, for instance, Second uh, and Third John clearly are addressed to individual people. And so the theology there, you have to be careful as you're exegeting it that you don't wrongly apply something here that was specific to the intended person. Um, the um, the uh, Philemon clearly is uh, one of these uh, letters that was you know, to be read, you know, to, you know, was written to an individual human being, but that doesn't mean that there's not theology in there that we can glean that, you know, fits within the general context. But for the most part, the, the epistles themselves are Catholic epistles, they're universal epistles, even though Romans was written to the church at Rome, it was circulated among churches throughout the Mediterranean, and the theology that is there was not is not a theology that's specific only to Christians in Rome, no, uh, what was laid out in the book of Romans is a theology that's universal for all Christians in all times. So there's actually a, you know, a qualitative difference between the Catholic epistles and the the epistle that is recorded in the book of Jeremiah that's specifically for the exiles in Babylon. So it's a, it's actually kind of a category error, but that is a great question. And I hope that well, what I said answered it. Okay, now I've I have to play our standard warning for this next segment. All I could say is if you hurt yourself. Listening to this next segment, it's your own fault. You have been warned after I play this. Here we go. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Like I said, you have been warned. Jay, what do you want to do tonight? 
The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. That, that's right. It's our new Apostolic Reformation update. We'll be using this uh, to introduce um, Chuck Pierce as well as Cindy Jacobs today. So this applies to both. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done. Their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. All right, here we go. This is a, (laughs) you're going to be listening to audio from a prophetic word that Chuck Pierce, one of the 12 living apostles on the earth for the new apostolic reformation, has received and the name, (laughs) I can't even play this straight. The name of the prophecy is, are you ready for this? A lightning strike will propel you and you will. We'll go through the keyhole. <laughs> Here we go. And if you will spill your emotions, says the Lord, I will strike you with lightning. <laughs> I don't want to steal my emotions. I don't want God to strike me with lightning. And my strike will go deep and divide asunder soul. Spirit in your heart for your that sounds like death to me. Heart has had soul structures that need to be struck at this time. But I say to you, I will raise you up, and the intercession you will hear in the next six days, I say to you, will set the course for how you strike open those things on your path you captured and stopped. I say to you, steal yourself these next six days and watch me strike you in a way that will open up your way. Uh-huh. Anyone want to take a crack at what any of that means? Now, <laughs> brace yourself, it gets weirder. Um, I can't explain it. Let's just keep going. what that is i can't tell i think it might be a native american shaman woman who's come up to um give some prophetic guttural utterances yeah that's right this is in the church that calls itself christian You may not want to play this too loudly on your home speakers. It might shatter your crystal. 
I'm glad I made it through that. And it gets worse. And I say to you, this will be a year that there will be many making it through narrow places. How narrow will they be, Chuck? But I say the travail that I bring upon you is most important. For yes, there's a door, but the keyhole is the entrance. <laughs> That's pretty narrow. Uh, you, you, listen, I still have a lot of weight to lose. I've lost a lot of weight in 2013, but I, I got, I, I don't, there's no way I'm fitting through a keyhole. And I say many must hear me coming and pulling them through that keyhole. Whew, does that sound painful? <laughs> Why would I want God to pull me through a keyhole? <laughs> I'd be spaghettified. I'd probably be dead after the ordeal. Sounds really painful. And them becoming and being molded into a key before the next door for their life will open. <laughs> so, after God grabs you and yanks you through a keyhole, you'll be nothing but goo and then he'll take you and mold you into a key. Can hardly wait. I say, even today, nations will start being pulled through the keyhole, saith the Lord. <laughs> this is so absurd. I mean, really. I mean, do you think that God the Holy Spirit is really this ridiculous? I mean, this is nonsense. And I say to you, nations will sound and weep, and nations will now say we are new in days ahead. For I say to you, this will be the year of division at the threshold, and because I am ready to open a door for the nations and those that have not known me sons and daughters to come into my house I say to you the travail will be great well yeah I'm sure it would be quite the travail for an entire nation to be sucked through a keyhole I, <laughs> whew, and there's divisions on the threshold I mean wow I mean whew, there's some prophecy for you right there yeah uh, <laughs> folks if you know anybody that's caught up in that particular church or thinks that Chuck Pierce is an actual prophet, he's not receiving words from God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not a a, a doom cough. You know, this I mean this is nuts. This is crazy talk. This this is the I mean, I dare you to go by go back and try to actually map out, you know, to kind of do a a sentence diagram on what you just heard. You can't do it because it's complete and utter nonsense. This isn't God the Holy Spirit speaking. These are not words that mean anything. These can't help anybody. If you want a word from God, a true word from God, then what you need to do is go and get your Bible, open it, and read it. Because God's word, God's word, the written word of God, is profitable for teaching, correcting, and rebuking, and training so that the man of God may be fully equipped 
or every good work. There isn't a good work that God has asked you to do or calls you to do that God's word, the written word, can't prepare you for. You don't need that kind of nonsense. That kind of nonsense actually distracts you and points you away from Jesus rather than points you towards him. What you need to do is chuck the false prophets, <clears throat> notice the play on words there, and uh, and listen to the lucid, true, written word of God, because God the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired it, and his, you can't read it without him being attached and working to it, yeah, through it. You, you get what I'm saying. All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Uh, we've got a uh, Cindy Jacobs update and a Mark Driscoll update. Kind of an interesting one with Driscoll, too. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> summoned here to answer for your crimes against the church. Hold on. What crimes? All I know is that an hour ago I was sound asleep in my own bed, minding my own business, and then you people broke into my house, threw a black bag over my head, and then forcibly dragged me to this horrible place. And you, <laughs> you, you have the audacity to tell me that I've committed a crime. Silence! We will not tolerate insolence from the mouth of the guilty. Let the trial begin. Oh, pyrotechnics. <laughs> nice touch. Sitting in James McDonald's place today as High Chancellor Law Driscoll. Thank you, Bailiff. Please read the charges. Henry Wigan, you have been charged with high treason against Harvest Bible Chapel for having an unauthorized opinion. You've got to be kidding me. Is it true that on your blog that you accused James McDonald of being financially irresponsible? Of course. Plunging the church into $65 million of debt Silence! Is we have already heard your opinion and it is for this slanderous accusation that you have been brought here before us. It's not an opinion. It's a fact. Oh! 
Precisely this heretical worldview held by the Elder Board that I created my blog in the first place. Church matters are not to be tried in the court of public opinion. Publicizing viewpoints rejected by the Elder Majority for any reason is satanic to the core and must be dealt with very directly, which is why you are here. <laughs> Hold on, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is if the Elder Board were to vote on what color the sky is, then whatever the majority agrees on, be it purple, pink, or brown, would be reality, regardless of the fact that the sky is clearly blue. Yes. Were you dropped on your head as a child? That's beside the point. What you fail to realize is that the cult of the individual is coming to an end. We are the collective, you see. We must eradicate the poisonous ideology of individualism from the conscious minds of our church community. If we have to fulfill the vision of our leader. <laughs> you know, that sounds an awful lot like fascism, if you ask me. Or anybody else for that matter. If that's what it takes, then so be it. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, people claiming to be receiving direct visions and prophecies from God who speak nonsense aren't receiving any information from God. They're deluded. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring 
Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month, that's it, for uh, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute to help keep us keep going, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, moving along, we're going to be listening to a a brief portion of what's called 10-Minute Prayer School, uh, put on by Cindy Jacobs of the New Apostolic Reformation. Listen in. This is called Prayers to Heal a Shipwrecked Life. I I picked it because, you know, it fits kind of a piratey theme. Pirates are, they're not happy about shipwrecks. So, you know, I want to make sure that you get some good information to avoid having a shipwrecked life. And if you should happen to have one, then you can quick, you know, you just whip out the uh, anti-shipwrecked life prayer and, and it'll just clear it right up. Here's Cindy Jacobs. Hi, welcome to 10-Minute Prayer School. On today's uh, session, we are going to be talking about prayers to heal a shipwrecked life. Prayers to heal a shipwrecked life. That's almost a tongue twister. Almost every person has had a trauma or situation in their life that can cause them to become what the Bible calls shipwrecked. You know, Ooh, oh, that sounds just sounds terrible. I mean, are, are you experiencing shipwreck in your life have you had a trauma that could cause shipwreck well then we've got great news for you this is going to clear it right up so where does the bible talk about shipwrecked lives again and what are the symptoms of it it's actually in the Word of God, 1 Timothy 1, 9 says, Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwrecked. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, hang on a second here. Yeah, why do I feel like she's pulling a fast one? Because you can't see what I just saw. I mean, they just threw the verse up really, really quick. And uh, <laughs> and this, no sooner did she read it than it, whoosh, it just got, you know, disappeared. So we're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. So, and they are context, context, context. So let me go to First Timothy chapter one, and let's let's put a little context here and see if you know just because the word shipwreck occurs, you know, in the Bible, if if this is really what Paul was really trying to get at was to give you some ideas about you know avoiding shipwreck and then giving you a prayer that you can apply to you know just clear up clear up a bad case of shipwreck in your life okay all right so first timothy chapter 1 i'll start at verse 12 the verse in question is verse 19 so we'll start at uh, verse 12 and here's what paul writes he says i thank him who has given me strength christ jesus our lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service though formerly i was a blasphemer a persecutor an insolent opponent but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost or the chief. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme." Okay, so the shipwreck that Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, is the shipwreck that comes of people who do not continue to hold the Christian faith, who do not adhere to sound doctrine, who've wandered off into false teaching and things like that. That's the shipwreck that he's talking about. Okay, now let's see what <clears throat> Cindy Jacobs thinks he's talking about, because what the Apostle Paul is talking about writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and what Cindy Jacobs thinks he's talking about. Well, those are two different things. She um, has this amazing ability in a really bad way to actually just grab into the Bible and pull something out and have no clue what it actually means. But she that, that never stops her. She'll just make something up as to what it supposedly means without paying attention to actually what it means. In other words, she's not teaching the truth. We continue. In other words, there are things that can happen to you in your life and in your belief system in faith, faith towards God, that will actually wound you and cause you to become shipwrecked. What happens in a shipwreck? You lose your abundance. You know, it... it, it yeah, I, I don't think Paul was referring to them, ref, you know, Hymenaeus and Alexander losing their abundance destroys your life at times even causes death so this biblical analogy is a very very powerful one a shipwreck life is a life full of bitterness and trauma here's (laughs) (laughs) oh man really a shipwreck life is full of bitterness and trauma i don't think that's what the apostle paul was talking about you just need to check the context you Number one, people that are shipwrecked complain of the hypocrites in the church. Oh, no. <laughs> By the way, that doesn't make, you know, if, if there's people complaining about hypocrites in the church, total confusion of law and gospel there. Okay. The reason I say that is because Christ came to save sinners, plain and simple. So if you've got the problem of, quote, hypocrites in the church, that might actually be a sign for real of real spiritual shipwreck. And the reason why is because you got the confusion of law and gospel going on. And if that's going on, then you might have like a kind of a two-tiered class system going on in church. And and where you, you, know, you have, on the one hand, the people who are putting themselves forward as the people who are pulling it off. 
Ah, yes, I have figured out the secrets to living the victorious Christian life. I, My secrets and principles have propelled me to the higher states of sanctimonious sanctitude. And I am, you know, and I am even more righteous than most people. And if you just follow my example and my three easy steps, then you too can be as righteous as I. And then, you know, in, in that environment, you know, you've got hypocrites. And the reason why is because a hypocrite is somebody who puts on a mask. And that would be an example of the hypocrite because are they really pulling it off? No, <laughs> not at all. That's just flat out either deception or self-deception or both. You, you get what I'm saying? So if you you got the hypocrite thing going on in church, that may be indicative of a confusing a confusion of law and gospel, which when that happens, the thing that gets lost in the mix is actually the gospel, not the law. And so you might actually have a real problem there. But I don't think that's what Cindy Jacobs is referring to, but we continue. To what people say, and you will begin to know after a while that this person has had situations in their life that have stunted their spiritual growth. Often their spiritual growth will be stunted. And I can make an analogy of this. Even people in the natural, there's some people that the best time of their life was maybe the 50s or 60s. So in some ways, their hairstyle never changed since that time. For women, you know, the way they wore their makeup. They All right, so if you have makeup or a hairstyle that, well, it looks like something from the 50s or 60s, you might be suffering from spiritual shipwreck. I've, I mean, you heard it from Cindy Jacobs. This is just terrible. That's right. If you have one of those beehive hairdos probably spiritual shipwreck we continue change because that was the best time of their life and they want to somehow hold on to that life rather than moving on with the times moving on with fashion or things like that but there are things that happen or if you talk to them they can't seem to move on past the trauma they, they can't ever come to a place where they can see the goodness of God for them today. They always will drift back in their conversation to the bad things that happen. Number two, nothing is ever a cause for spiritual rejoicing. Oh, yeah. If, if nothing ever causes you to have spiritual rejoicing, you've got spiritual shipwreck going on there. And where did Paul talk about this in first? Timothy 1? Oh, yeah, he didn't. They may start to rejoice over something, but then they will flip back to this other person that was hurt or what is shipwrecked, as we're saying. Number three, their prayer life is stunted. They seemingly cannot pray beyond, you know, what happened to them. Now, this doesn't happen to everyone that's shipwrecked, but many times it does happen. Because mm -hmm. In your professional opinion, I'm sure. Remember what the Bible said in 1 Timothy 1, 9, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Yeah, rejecting the faith. Re oh. Never mind. Language doesn't obviously mean anything uh, to Cindy Jacobs. Number four, they have an area where they have ceased growing in their faith. What do I mean by this? Well, they were. Yeah, what exactly do you mean by that? 
hurt by a certain traumatic situation. Some pastor disappointed them somewhere, so they don't go to church anymore. They're shipwrecked. They can't seem to grow. Yeah, maybe some pastor deceived them and they could see past the deception, and now they think that that's what Christianity is, and they've never actually been taught real Christianity. You know, listen to the lecture I played from Dr. Rosenblatt, the uh, you know Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. They're bitter at a certain denomination. And as you talk to them, you will hear them saying, we talk about this, oh, well, those Christians, this is how they are. And they look for reasons that others can agree with them. Shipwrecked people like to hang out together sometimes. We say in the U.S., birds of a feather flock together. So they want to be together. Number five They will be spiritually immature over an extended period of time. They just can't seem to grow. They can't seem to get beyond. Now, the the irony, the really weird irony here is that by twisting uh, 1 Timothy 1 verse 19, the way that um, Cindy Jacobs is, and, and she has this chronic inability to rightly handle God's word, she actually is indicative of somebody whose faith has been shipwrecked. That's the weird part, and she's telling us about spiritual shipwreck, and of course, clearly, she's clueless as to what it actually means. It has the trauma that has happened or the situation that has occurred to them. One day, I was challenged by a young Argentine leader, and this is an amazing story for me personally. He came to me and he said, Cindy, you're holding back on the Lord. You are not praying in faith in your miracle services as specifically as you used to. And I thought about it, and I realized that was true. I was giving more general words of knowledge, but I wasn't giving those pinpointed ones where I was... Can I point something out here? If she was really hearing communication from God, the Holy Spirit, um, would she really be giving more general words of knowledge rather than pinpoint specific words of knowledge? Yeah, because here's the thing about prophecy. Okay, true prophecy. These are the words and teachings of God, the Holy Spirit. The person speaking them is merely the messenger. Why would God, the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, you know, put her in the driver's seat as to whether or not the message is going to be specific or general? He wouldn't. There's no, there is no, not one example of that in the, in the scriptures. You know, prophets hear the word of the Lord and they speak it and God is specific and he's lucid. So here we've got uh, Cindy Jacobs tacitly, kind of by accident, actually admitting that she's really a false prophet and she's not really hearing from God, the Holy Spirit. You know, a specific illness or disease. I wasn't leaping out. So in some measure, I was crippled in my gift. Well, how did that happen? Well, I remembered as I prayed about it that a certain situation had happened where I prayed for someone and they died. And I was so hurt over this that... Uh Did you prophesy over them that they would live? Hmm. Yeah. Again, she's just admitting she's a false prophet. I wasn't willing anymore to extend my faith. I was shipwrecked. And so knowing that it happened, I made a determination that I, and I forgave the situation. I asked God to heal me. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But then I went on from there and the very next meeting I did at Adrogay, Argentina, I began to just move out 
powerfully in faith. I gave this prophecy. There's someone here, you were in a car accident, and it destroyed your right cheekbone. So literally, there's a hollow under your cheek. You have no cheekbone. Where are you? You see, that even takes faith to ask someone to stand up when you're ministering like this rather than generically give words. There is someone here that has this condition. And so this woman stood up. You could see she'd been in a car accident. She had that concave, you know, to uh, look to her cheek. And I said, reach up and feel it. And she did. And as she rubbed her hand over her cheek, when she moved it away, you could see God had grown the bone right under her hand. Praise. Yeah. Um, can we see the medical records for this so-called healing, please? Lord. Thank God for that admonition from that young leader named Abraham challenging me in my life. So I realize at times I've gotten shipwrecked. You can be shipwrecked in the area of your giving. You know, if you have the gift of giving and you get hurt or disappointed by somebody. Shipwrecked in the area of giving, uh-huh. Gave to what happens? You don't want to give anymore. You become stunted. You're shipwrecked. Your strength is now your stronghold. And you cannot operate as you need to operate in the gift God gave you. I've seen this happen to past. Oh, man. Okay, Cindy, so what's the solution to this particular shipwrecky problem that you've been describing for people here? And it hurt them and the church. So how do we get out of this? Maybe some of you thought, oh, no, I'm shipwrecked. Cindy, don't leave me like this. Okay. we. <laughs> oh, no, I'm shipwrecked. Don't leave. I'm going to have to go get a volleyball and name it Wilson and start talking to it. All right. Number one, ask God to reveal to you how it happened. <laughs> Lord, how did this shipwreck problem happen to me? Oh man. Okay. I, I can't go on. I no. I, I can't go on. The reason I can't go on is the Bible doesn't teach any of this. And yet she's, this is 10 minute prayer school with uh, Cindy Jacobs. Um, so what's the problem here? The Bible doesn't teach any of this doctrine, not at all. And so what this woman has done is taken a verse out of context and then she's turned right around and started to come up with a solution that we're supposed to apply to our lives so that we can then, you know, you know, fix this problem that, you know, may have overcome us. Are you, are you suffering from shipwreck? Well, <clears throat> sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Exactly. We've got a bad connection going on here. Um, she hasn't correctly connected us with God's word. As a result of it, this is just nonsense. This isn't biblical teaching. This can't help Christians. This doesn't help with sanctification. The Bible doesn't eat. You get what I'm saying. Okay, moving along. This is kind of an interesting um, segment that we're going to be doing here. This is a Mark Driscoll update. Since we're doing that, uh, we, well, we've got to play this. Feed no sheep, so get busy and amuse those goats. Don't be lazy, you hit to satisfy the leader's God given vision supreme. If you dare to question him, well, there'd certainly be a scene. Look out. 
Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, he's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. They got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. They got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. our Mark Driscoll update music that we play here uh, in honor of the fact that he's never repented of saying these words or teaching this doctrine or anything of the sort. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. Um, if you remember back a while ago, Mark Driscoll, um, he was one of the um, getaway drivers, if you would, uh, at Elephant Room 2. Uh, they tried to smuggle T.D. Jakes into the mainstream of uh, evangelical um, theology. Uh, basically, and Mark Driscoll was the guy uh, driving the getaway car there. And um, Mark Driscoll, uh, you know, if you're kind of wondering, well, does he still think T.D. Jakes is a uh, is a brother in Christ? And you know, you know, what is his view regarding televangelists and the uh, prosperity gospel and stuff like that? Well, funny that you would ask that question because Mark Driscoll um, recently posted a video at Mars Hill Church, uh, their YouTube site. And the name of the video is The Good and the Bad of Prosperity Theology. Now, let me read that title again. Are you ready? The Good and the Bad of Prosperity Theology. Can any of you name a good thing about the prosperity gospel? 
I can't think of a single thing that is worth saying, oh, well, it's got some really good stuff in it. And as you listen to this, I'm going to point out something along the way, and that's this, is that this argument only runs one way when it should be running two ways. I'll explain that as we go. But here's Mark Driscoll to introduce this topic to us by reading a passage from the book of Malachi. Here we go. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. This is a section of the temple. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He continues, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then, Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. There it is. This is the epicenter for prosperity theology. Let me say what I appreciate about those who are dealing with issues of finances from this text. I may not agree with all their conclusions. We'll get into that. But here's what I appreciate. I appreciate the fact that they're dealing with finances, wealth, and possessions. Okay. And by that, we're talking about prosperity, people who are involved in the prosperity heresy. You're, you're thankful that they're dealing with the concept of health and fi- – not health, but finances and wealth and stuff like that. I'm so glad that they're at least addressing the issue of money. Isn't that nice of them? That, that we should commend them for that. Really? We continue. Sometimes pastors are cowards when it comes to finances because we have fear of you more than fear of the Lord. We're fearful of what people think. We're fearful of what people will say. And because for many people, money is their idol, pastors avoid it because they don't like the backlash, the conflict, and the controversy that comes when you start approaching someone's idol. Uh, I I see. So because the prosperity pimps... Um, the so-called prosperity preachers, because they have the courage to approach people's idols, that you know th- this is a positive thing as opposed to the the pastors who are afraid to talk about money idolatry. Really, this is a, some kind of a compelling positive thing about the prosperity uh, gospel. The reason why they're not afraid to approach people's idol is because prosperity preachers have money as their idol and their God, and they know that by approaching it with their false theology the way they do, they're going to be able to convince people in the name of God to take the money out of their own wallets and put it into the prosperity preacher's wallet. How is that a positive thing? That's not courage. That's... Well, that's what we call a money scheme. God doesn't have that kind of fear. God talks of money a lot. Money, wealth, stewardship, investments, possessions. God speaks of these things in the Old and New Testament combined about 800 times. It's major, not minor. And some people come along and they say, you know, we shouldn't talk about money. We should be like Jesus. Well, those people have not read Jesus. Because 25% of the time, Jesus talked about money. Yeah, actually, I'm going to challenge this. Now, I'm going to be doing an in-depth segment on this in a future installment of Fighting for the Faith. But Jesus, 
um, to say Jesus, 25% of the time Jesus talked about money, it, you know, this is a, you know, I've heard other arguments. Oh, you know, if you were going to the Gospel of Luke, you know, one third of uh, the Gospel of Luke is Jesus talking about money. No, it's not. Okay. When Jesus talks about, for instance, the parable of the lost coin, that is not Jesus talking about money. That's Jesus talking about repentance. You, for instance, you, you read the, you know, the parable of the talents. That is not about money management. Sorry. That's about something else. Okay. The parable of the lost treasure, not about money. Okay, uh, so this idea that somehow Jesus was constantly talking about money, you're, you're going to look long and hard for Jesus to be giving investment advice. You're, you're going to be looking long and hard and fruitlessly to find where Jesus is talking about, you know, the important thing. Here's the steps on how to properly manage your money. Okay, that's not what he talks about. Now, Jesus does address the issue of idolatry when it comes to money. But he's not teaching about money management. The Bible, you know, the, none of his parables are about that, despite what anybody would say. You can't say, don't talk about money, be like Jesus. I am talking about money because I want to be like Jesus. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, 25% of all G- Jesus' instruction and words, it's on money, wealth, possessions, and stewardship. Most- yeah, no, it's not. It really isn't. Most of the parables are all fiscally, financially related. Again, the parables that are fiscally, financially related, again, lost coin, treasure, talent, stuff like that. It's not about being fiscally responsible. To how we spend our money, because as Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart is. And giving is an indicator of your first love. So I appreciate that they're willing to deal with finances, money, wealth, possessions. I appreciate that they're trying to work from the section of Scripture. So he appreciates that the, the health and wealth prosperity preachers like T.D. Jakes, he appreciates the fact that they're, they're willing to address the issue of money. This is nonsense. Where I disagree is how this text is taught that you give to get. No. Pay close attention to what he does because his argument runs one way rather than two ways. So what he disagrees is that the way this text is taught is that you give to get. Now listen carefully to what he does here because he doesn't want to be divisive. Because that can feed greed. That's my concern. If we love God, we will use money. But if we love money, we will use God to get more money. And the question is, what's the goal? God or greed? And my fear is that sometimes it is taught like this. They're not giving. God says give. God says if they give, he'll bless them. So all of a sudden, the text is taught like this. God's a pinata, lives up in the sky. Okay, God's a full pinata. And the reason that the stuff hasn't fallen down is you haven't tithed. So go get a stick called a tithe, okay? And grab your stick and give the full 10%. Shazam! Right? The pinata explodes and out comes all the blessings. Okay? And when we teach it like that, ultimately, it's about greed. 
It's about giving a little to the Lord to get a lot from the Lord. All of a sudden, it's more of a Ponzi scheme than a worship act. What we're dealing with in Malachi 3 absolutely happened. God promised something very specific. And it's not like this all the time. Otherwise, the offering becomes an ATM. You go up, punch in the code, 10%, enter, out comes all the cash for you, and you get more than you give. My, my fear again is we don't give to get. We don't feed greed. Jesus says you can't worship God and money. And when it's taught like this, my fear is you're not loving God, you're loving money and using God to get more money. And then the heart is wrong. The motive is wrong. The intent is wrong. Okay. Now here's what I mean by kind of one way. Okay. Notice the, the, the corrective is not to the prosperity preachers. It's to the people who sit under the prosperity preacher's teaching. He's concerned that the reason they're giving, that their motive is wrong. What's the motive then of the prosperity preachers who are preaching this? Is it not greed themselves? So why isn't he going after them with as much equal vim and vigor as he's concerned about the people who who are giving in order to get from God, which clearly is a problem. I mean, granted, that's absolutely a problem. But my question is this, is okay, so he's talking, let's say he's talking then to the people at the potter's house, the people who show up every Sunday to hear T.D. Jakes preach. He's concerned that the reason why they're giving so much money uh, at the potter's house and throwing the dollar bills down on the steps there, you know, in front of the stage is because they're giving in order to get from God. Well, right. That's exactly what they're doing. Their motive is clearly wrong. But who taught them to do that? T.D. Jakes did. What was his motive for teaching that doctrine? Hmm? Now, one thing that the prosperity teachers will say, and some of them are brothers and sisters in Christ, and some love Jesus, and some have other things that they teach that are very helpful. And, and I, I don't want to be unnecessarily divisive, and I don't want to name names, and I don't want to make this incredibly negative. Uh, but you, you don't want to be divisive, you don't want to name names, and you don't want to be negative. Okay, this is weird. Okay, because <clears throat> here's what scripture says, Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Paul names the party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Uh huh. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So here we've got Mark Driscoll. He, and he's, he's like he's walking on eggshells. 
oh, I, I, I don't want to be unnecessarily divisive because, you know, some of those guys out there that are preaching the prosperity heresy, they're, they're brothers in the Lord, and I don't want to be unnecessarily divisive. And, and so he's not really going after them and their greed, and he's not going to rebuke them the way the Apostle Paul says. And again, listen to those words. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You know the reason why T.D. Jakes teaches the prosperity heresy is because he's teaching it for shameful gain because he's made a lot of money preaching it. Do you know why Paula White preaches it? Same reason. Joel Osteen, same reason. You know, all of these prosperity heretics, the reason why they preach this stuff is for shameful gain. And here, Driscoll is, oh, he's addressing the people. He's concerned that there's people, that the reason why they're giving money to these people is because they're trying to get, they think that they can buy something from God by doing so. Of course, that's what they're doing because that's what they've been told to do. They've been told that's what God is all about. And who told them that? The prosperity preachers. And yet you, oh, I I don't want to be unnecessarily divisive. And, you know, because there's some good that they do, he says. Yet Paul says, rebuke them sharply. Because they're teaching for shameful gain the things they ought not to preach. Let me back this up a little bit. I mean, this is what has happened to Mark Driscoll. Listen again. Prosperity teachers will say, and some are brothers and sisters in Christ, and some love Jesus, and some have other things that they teach that are very helpful. And and I I don't want to be unnecessarily divisive, and I don't want to name names, and I don't want to make this incredibly negative. Yeah. So he doesn't want to be negative. He wants, and so we, we've got the, oh, they do so many positive things. They teach some things that are so helpful. Oh, yeah. But, you know, man, it makes me wonder if this is not an example of what the scripture warns about bad company corrupting good character. Nowhere in scripture are we commanded to, you know, to focus on the positive things that heretics are saying, especially when they're teaching things for shameful gain. Instead, scripture says that we're to rebuke them sharply because they're doing that. And Mark Driscoll's teaching here, although there's some merit to what the, you know, the, the exegetical points that he's making regarding Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, uh, the problem is this, is that some of his buddies are the ones who are twisting that passage and teaching it in a way that tells people, uh, well, if you give, you, that you give to God so that you can get. And they, they prime the, the, the money pump by playing into people's greed and twisting this text. But don't, don't expect Mark Driscoll to name names. And, and if he does, he doesn't want to be overly divisive or negative or anything like that. Wow. I mean, I just, I see this as indicative of Mark Driscoll. Um, you know, this is the consequences of the compromise uh, that he's guilty of regarding Elephant Room 2 and what he did with T.D. Jakes. He's giving people like that a pass now and, uh, and you know, and even is tiptoeing around the topic and the issue and their heresy uh, when the topic comes up in texts that he's preaching through. Truly, truly sad. <laughs> All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with two 
good sermons. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Well into hour number two here at Fighting for the Faith. We'll be listening to two good sermons here. First one is, man, in your face. And I'm probably going to have to sit in on it and explain a couple of things exegetically as to what's going on. Talk about law. Wow. And good sweet gospel at the end. But uh, let's do this right. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, both of them, uh, two of them come from us. Uh, first one is from uh, uh, Trinity Lutheran Church of Murdoch, Nebraska, Pastor Brent Kuhlman presiding. The name of his sermon is entitled, Baby Jesus is Lord, and it was preached on the first Sunday after Christmas on December 29th. And the gospel text is Gospel of Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 23 and this is a zinger of a sermon. I'll explain what's going on though in it. 
Um, second sermon uh, comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. Pastor Jeremy Rohde presiding, and the name of that sermon is entitled To Fulfill All Righteousness. And that sermon is on the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So let me go ahead and kill the music here. Um, and like I said, I'm going to sit in on uh, on Brent Kuhlman's sermon because, ta- I mean, he takes out the flamethrower of the law in this one, uh, which, by the way, is law preaching, what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to use the law to kill. You're not supposed to use it to wound or maim. Um, so, uh, But let me read the gospel text that we'll be preaching from so we have the context here. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, and it reads, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then uh, was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more." But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this forms the text for the sermon that we're about to listen to. And what uh, Pastor Kuhlman is going to do in this sermon is he's going to tease out the sin of Herod. And then he's going to universalize it in a way that would end up applying to a lot of people. Okay, and so the idea here, he's he's going to preach the law from this text by looking at the sin of Herod. And again, it's flame thrower law that you're going to hear, and this is the right way to preach law. But then he's going to end it with the gospel. So you you got to get ready because what you're about to hear, I mean, this is John the Baptist. uh, This this is very John the Baptist-esque of what we're going to hear from Brent Kuhlman. Almost reminds me of, you know, if we, if we were listening to this, if, uh, if uh, Brent Kuhlman wouldn't be spitting a grasshopper leg in our face afterward if we went up to complain about the sermon. But no, this is a good, this is a good sermon. So here we go. The name of the sermon is Baby Jesus is Lord. Like I said, get ready for some flamethrower law followed by sweet gospel. Here we go. peace and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel. Please be seated. 
Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, warning, warning, this sermon will tell it like it is today, and to a certain degree, I'm going to pull a Phil Robertson, only it will be Nebraska Lutheran style. It may make you squirm in your comfortable puke cushion. Why is that? Well, here's why. Because I will assert the first commandment lordship of Jesus against the mock and artificial lordship of your old Adam in order to put your old Adamic self to death and more so that a new man, the new creation, will emerge and arise to live before Lord Jesus Christ through faith. Faith that confesses Jesus to be the Lord who is God for you. Now I know that such preaching is scandalous and outrageous, and it offends. Believe me, I, I know that. You don't have to tell me that. But there's another reason that I will preach the way I do today. It is meant to lead you to to repentance, contrition and faith, that is. And then as God's new creation, spelled F-A-I-T-H, you will then be the Lord's instrument for good in the world for those who desperately need your help. Well, I've cautioned you. Uh, yeah, he has. Like I said, this is flame thrower law. There's not going to be a single person left after this napalming of our self-righteousness. He's, we're all going to be basically um, thrown into the same bin as Herod in the text that we just read. H hang on, here we go. Are you ready to go? Are you? Okay. Yeah, you know, the front porch of my sermon has already become too long, so I'd better get with it. So here goes. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me tell you about the little lords, the small L lords of this past century. Joseph Stalin purposely starved, exiled, exterminated about 12 million Ukrainians in the 1930s to create what? A worker's paradise called the Soviet Union. Adolf Hitler's utopian dream to create a Third Reich made up of a new and a perfect humanity led to the slaughter of at least, of at least six million Jews in Poland and Germany. And then, of course, in order to achieve a Leninist heaven on the earth in the 1970s, Pol Pot and his red Khmers tortured, starved, and executed at least three million Cambodians. And it was all legal in the 1930s Soviet Union. It was all legal in the 1940s Germany. It was all legal in the 1970s Cambodia to torture, to starve, to gas, to decapitate, to impale or shoot millions of people in the backs of their heads because the little kingdoms in which these tyrants lived had to be fundamentally transformed for the better. The end justified the means, and they alone could do it. And therefore Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot acted as if they were little divinities, almighty gods on the face of the earth. And consequently, they tolerated no rivals. The first commandment only applied to them. 
You shall have no other gods than Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot. Reminds me, of course, of the current North Korean dictator who on a whim or in a drunken tirade hands over his uncle, other family members, political aides, hands them over to execution. Why? Because they dare to dream different dreams than the regime. And it's all what? Legal. It's all legit because the dictator declares it to be. Now let me tell you about another brutal totalitarian from the first century who believed that the first commandment was only about him as well. His name? Herod the Great. He brooked no rivals to his throne. You shall fear, love, and trust in Herod the Great above all things. Anyone that posed a threat to his first commandment, God-like position or rule, he or she just, you know, conveniently disappeared. Seriously, he was utterly ruthless. You know, Herod the Great makes Tony Soprano look like a polite little schoolgirl from Elmwood Murdoch. Many called him a madman, and they were absolutely right. Why? Because he murdered his own... He murdered his own wife. He murdered three of his own sons. He put to death his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, many rabbis, and dozens of other people, maybe hundreds of other people that we don't even know or are even aware of. Herod the Great was prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his ambition. No rivals. No competition. Caesar Augustus in Rome, with his tongue in his cheek, said that it was better to be Herod's pet pig than his son. And now Herod is troubled. He is distressed and he is disturbed. And when little L. Lord Herod is anxious, all of metropolitan Jerusalem should be worried as well because Herod is always just one rail short from another train wreck. He's heard of the birth of another king, a rival. And the Magi from the east have come for the new king's coronation. The baby is Lord, not Herod. The first commandment God has prophesied by the prophet Micah has arrived. Led by the star, these dignitaries from the east have come to, to worship the one born king of the Jews. Worship? Ha, only little Lord Herod is to be worshipped. And so he tells them, you go and look really hard for the child... And you find him, and you tell me where he's at, so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. Not hardly. Like that's going to happen. Did you notice that Herod said the word child, not king? He could not bring himself to say to the Magi, Now you go and find the newborn king. He couldn't say that. And when the Magi do not return, when they will not be used as Herod's pawns, to give up the location of the true divine king, first commandment, baby Jesus, Herod is furious and he flies off the handle. The order is given and the newborn king of the Jews must not be allowed to survive. He can-
now notice again. I don't normally inter- interrupt Brent Kuhlman's uh, sermons, but I want you to see what he's doing here. He keeps referring to Jesus as the first commandment, Jesus, the first commandment, Lord, the first commandment, King, because that's who Jesus is. He is the big. L, big O, big R, big D of the Old Testament. That's who Jesus is. He is the God who says, before me you will have no other gods. That's who he is. So what we're dealing with here with the tyrannical, crazy, murderous Herod is we're dealing with a man who is guilty of breaking the first commandment on the highest order. And so he's constantly referring, Brent is keeps referring to Jesus as first commandment, Lord Jesus. This is important because he, Brett is preaching law right now. He's preaching law and the circle is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And the noose is already around your neck. And if you don't feel it yet, give it a second. You're going to feel it. Your self-righteousness is about to be obliterated. The arrival to little L Lord Herod. And so all the infant boys in Bethlehem and in Bethlehem's vicinity are to be properly dealt with, uh, handled. No doubt Herod called the executive order the Bethlehem Baby Boy Initiative. Or perhaps he called it the Loving and Honoring King Herod Act. Or possibly the Patriotic Protection of the Realm Statute. All signed with the autograph, Your Loving and Benevolent Herod the Great. (laughs) Nice euphemisms. Politico spin for the baby boys must be eliminated. They must be put to the sword and murdered. After all, there can only be one lord and one king. And it's all what? It's all legal. Because it comes from the mouth of the totalitarian Herod the Great. However, when baby King Jesus arrives, Herod's sovereignty and Herod's lordship is over. And so is yours. His wanting to be God is old and it has come to an end. And so has yours. And so has yours. That's right. We're dealing with the first commandment here. Your sovereignty as Lord is over with the appearance of baby Jesus. And now you should feel that noose around your neck starting to squeeze and cut off the air to your self-righteousness. It's only going to get more uncomfortable for you. Hang on. Baby King Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one true God. Herod and you are not. Oh, man. That's right. He just threw us all in with Herod. And he's right. He's right. The first first sin our parents committed in the Garden of Eden was to believe the devil when he said, When you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. Sin has its root in the breaking of the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. 
This is what God commands. And in the garden, Satan, knowing full well that God will not have any other gods before him, convinced Adam and Eve to become their own gods, their own lords. And all of us who have been born to Adam and Eve suffer from this fatal, fatal sin. We act as if we are Lord. We are God. So, yeah, there we go. So Brent has told the story from the text, and now he's drawing valid parallel comparisons between me and you and Herod. This is not the kind of preaching you will ever hear Joel Osteen give. But this is what it means to preach God's law, to convict and kill the old Adam. Notice deep and how dark sin is. Herod gives us a prime example. Original sin's reaction, and it's spilling out all over the place to the fact that baby King Jesus is Lord is what? What's, it, what's original sin's reaction to that? Rebellion. The old Adamic self reacts violently when he is told Jesus is Lord and you are not. Jesus is King and you are not. Herod is so curved in on himself, so focused on himself, that he does his darndest. And I'd use a different word if uh, certain people weren't here. He does his darndest to kill the baby. He puts all of his political and military muster to massacre the Messiah. And, you know, if there's collateral damage, you know, slaughtering dozens, if not hundreds, of baby boys, he couldn't give a... And I'd like to say something else, but I can't. Murder is worth it if it preserves his lordship. And so, as the text says, Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. This is a huge tragedy. A baby boy has become an inconvenience, a bother, a nuisance, a hassle, a problem. And so he must be brutally, brutally done away with. Reminds us of the tragic murder of at least 50 million, at least, at least, that's a low number, of at least 50 million babies in our country since 1973 for all the same reasons and more. We excuse it with, well, you know, it's the law of the land, or we're intimidated with the bullying, idolatrous canard. The woman's right to choose can never be threatened, violated, or outlawed. As if the very discussion, let alone the working, to reverse Roe versus Wade is the most insidious, sinister, and diabolical hate speech that the world has ever heard. So curved in on themselves. The world is full of Herods and Herodesses that will stop at nothing to murder their own offspring in order to ensure that they will conveniently reign as little lords, as if they are divines who will call all the shots and then, of course, demonize and destroy and damn anyone who opposes their lordship. Brothers and sisters, I ask you the most serious question that I can ask you today. Is Roe versus Wade the Lord's infallible, inerrant word? Is it? That's right, it's not. Then why in the world do we act like it is? 
The Lord's word is very clear. You shall not murder. And that commandment flows from the first. You break the fifth. And you break the the first. We need to repent for our active participation in such sin. And then use Lord Jesus against our sin for its forgiveness. Do not despair, brothers and sisters. He died for all sin. He didn't leave such sin out of his atoning death. Not even this one is too big for him. There's the gospel. Notice it includes the forgiveness of the very sin that he's convicted us all of being guilty of. Oh, wow. And we also need to repent for our inactivity when we just stand by and let the defenseless little ones be viciously destroyed. In our apathy or our indifference to defend the weak and the helpless, we have sinned against those little ones. We break the fifth commandment when we do not do anything to protect them or to come to their aid. Do you realize that? It's true. And so I beg you to repent of your lack of concern and believe that the blood of Jesus cleanses and restores sinners so that he can now have beneficial use for you in the world to help those who are helpless and defenseless. And so such good use of you, his redeemed people, looks like this. That we Christians speak truth to power. That we Christians speak the truth of God's word to power. Both privately and publicly. In the secular realm and even in the church We should not abandon the public square or the church and leave it naked. It is time for us to tell the Herods and the Herodesses, the bishops and church leaders in the world, that legalized abortion cannot continue. We must notify the secular authorities and even the bishops in the church that while it may be legal, it does not please the Lord And that it is truly sin. We should calmly, sternly, and categorically declare to these Herods and Herodesses and to the bishops and church authorities, to their faces, to their faces, that they too must repent before it's too late, when they will face the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, and there will be no longer any time for repentance. It is also time for us to step up to the plate in order to actively work to protect the unborn. Seriously, it's time. But how? Well, there are many ways, and I'm only just going to mention a few. First, we must pray. We must pray to the Lord that he will raise up men and women who will govern according to God's will, that he will raise up church authorities and bishops in the church who will not violate the fifth commandment on purpose, but will support it and teach it properly. Second, in your God-given vocations, you are to speak and to teach and work. As parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents, you are given to teach 
in your family, your children and grandchildren, even in your congregation, that life is a gift from the Lord. And as citizens, vote. Vote. Vote for and lawfully support those. I said lawfully. Support those who protect life. Vote against, and I said lawfully, work against politicians and candidates or even church authorities and bishops who are hell-bent on making sure that mass murder remains legal. And so Herod's order was carried out. This, too, is a massive crisis in the history of the world, and it's a massive crisis for your life. Satan uses Herod as his instrument to keep the true baby king from being the first commandment God for you and for your salvation. If Herod, in his infanticidal madness, can eliminate baby boy King Jesus, then there will be no what? Then there won't be a what? There won't be a Good Friday. And there won't be an Easter Sunday. No enthronement of the true king on the cross. No reign then of his forgiveness for sinners through his divine blood that drips and flows from his crucified and slain divine body. And so the family escapes to Egypt and returns after Herod dies. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Yes, God's son. Baby Jesus provides the new and greater exodus because he's the king. He's God in the flesh for you. First commandment, God for you. He has redeemed you. He is your Lord in that way by rescuing you from death and the devil and forgiving you all of your sins in his Good Friday dying. That too, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, was all done in fulfillment of the scriptures. It was all done according to God's will and his word. So that what? So that now you can live in his kingdom by faith. And that you can then sacrificially live a life of love in the world for the sake of other people. Serving and protecting, as I've mentioned today, the unborn in and through your various vocations. Fearing and loving God so that you do not hurt or harm your neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. That is part, not only, but that is part of God's good use for you in the world to help those in need. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Now let me explain something. That was not a confusion of law and gospel. That was repentance, forgiveness of sins, and what it looks like having been set free from the bondage of sin to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Every use of the law in the sermon was a valid correct use of the law, even in talking about sanctification, now that you have been forgiven by your Lord Jesus, by the the baby Jesus who becomes the adult Jesus who is enthroned and inaugurated and coronated on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, that first commandment, Jesus, now that you were set free from the condemning work of the law, you are now set free from bondage to sin death and the and the devil and you are now set free to love and serve your neighbor every if you go and you carefully pay attention to how he used the law there at that all of that was valid use of the law 
valid, not invalid. It wasn't what we heard from Ann Voskamp. Well, God has done so much for you. You should do so much for him. You know, no, no, no. That, that, that wasn't that. This was Christ has bled and died for you. You are forgiven and set free. Now bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Love and serve your neighbor because you've been set free to do so. That is the right use of the law for the Christian. And Brent did it brilliantly. And he did it boldly. And he did it in a way that was in your face. Tell you, that's what prophetic, good law gospel preaching sounds like. All right. Sermon number two. Sermon number two is from Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, Pastor Jeremy Rohde, and his sermon entitled To Fulfill All Righteousness, and it's from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, which reads, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde in his sermon entitled, To Fulfill All Righteousness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why was Jesus baptized? It doesn't make sense. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What need did Jesus have of repentance or forgiveness? He was sinless. He needed no baptism. So John would have prevented him. Jesus answered John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. But what does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? Wasn't Jesus completely righteous already? Of course he was. So whose righteousness needed to be fulfilled? Not his. Then whose? Ours. Jesus is baptized for the fulfilling of our righteousness. He goes into those baptismal waters, not for his own good, but for our good. There in the Jordan, the sinless Son of God is baptized into our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is baptized into our sin that we may be baptized into his righteousness. And that is what we are. You see, Jesus' baptism isn't about Jesus being obedient to the law. Where does the law command baptism? Jesus' baptism is not for him. It's for us and for our salvation. As he says, it is for the fulfilling of all righteousness. 
there are two kinds of righteousness. There's the righteousness that's up to you. Are you a good person? Are you better than most of the people around you? Have you improved much over the years? Are you at least a better person than you used to be? Actually, when God judges your righteousness, He doesn't care one bit about any of that. The only thing God cares about is if you have kept His law perfectly. That is His definition of righteousness. And since He's the judge, it's really the only definition that matters. When it comes to judging and weighing your righteousness, God really doesn't care how hard you've tried or if you've done your best. God really doesn't care if you've learned from your mistakes or tried to make up for them. God really doesn't care about your genetic predispositions or how you were raised or what you were taught or what you thought was best At the time, God only cares if you have completely and perfectly fulfilled His holy law. That's what righteousness is. You're only righteous if you have loved Him and sought Him and obeyed Him always, not by compulsion, but freely from your heart. You are only righteous. If you have honored His name, revered Him, obeyed Him in all things, and defended His name against all lies and slander, no matter what it cost you, you are only righteous if you have heard and taken to heart every word that He has preached into your ears, no matter how strange or boring the preacher was. And that's just to mention some of what you owe God. Have you ever held the government in something less than the highest esteem? What about pastors or church leaders, your parents growing up, or anyone else in authority? If so, you are not righteous in God's sight. Have you ever thought evil of another person, even if you didn't mean to? Your spouse or a relative of yours? Your annoying coworker? or unfair boss, that lady who cut you in line. If you have, you're not righteous in God's sight. I think you see the point. If you have ever lusted or stolen, or just taken advantage of someone, gossiped, or even listened to gossip, coveted what you don't have, or been jealous of others for what they do have, If any of that describes you, then you're not righteous in God's sight. Heaven is the place where good people go when they die. The problem is, there's no one good. This is all the first kind of righteousness. The whole world thinks that it has this kind of righteousness, but it doesn't. Almost every person thinks that he or she is basically good, but we're not. The righteousness God demands from us is all or nothing. No excuses, no curve. 
You're either perfectly righteous or you're not. And if you're not, then God will very righteously throw unrighteous you in hell. Simply because that's where unrighteousness belongs. In Jesus, a new kind of righteousness is revealed. The righteousness of God apart from the law. This is the second kind of righteousness. It is a righteousness that has nothing at all to do with what you have done or left undone. It is a righteousness that never even attempts to measure you at all. It is a righteousness that cannot be earned. It can only be given as a pure gift. No conditions, no strings attached, and no taking it back. It is God who freely gives this righteousness, and He gives it even to the ungodly. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Luther says it this way, Therefore, whoever takes hold of Christ by faith, no matter how terrified by the law and oppressed by the burdens of his sins he is, he has the right to boast that he is righteous. St. Paul says it this way, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. God does not count your sin. Instead, he counts you righteous. Perfectly righteous. Why? Because your Lord Jesus fulfilled your righteousness when he walked into the Jordan River to be baptized. God does not count your sin because your sin was there poured out on Jesus. They're his sins now. He was baptized so that he might carry all your sin to the cross once and for all. In fact, Jesus' baptism and Jesus' cross are so closely connected that he even calls his cross a baptism, saying, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Our Lord Jesus wanted to be baptized for the same reason he wanted to go to the cross. He loves you more deeply and more fully than you can possibly know. And he knows that the only way for you to escape death and hell, the only way for the heavens to be open to you, is for him to first be drenched in your sin, 
covered in it, soaked with it, baptized into it, so that He is your sin. This is why when He comes up from those baptismal waters, God says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Sin-soaked Jesus pleases God. Why? Because God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. By being baptized into your sin, Jesus is doing exactly what the Father has sent Him to do. So God counts him to be the sinner. And God counts you to be righteous. It is the fulfilling of all righteousness. The righteousness of God apart from the law. And it is the most amazing thing that has ever been or ever will be. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.